0: Well, brethren, if you would, take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Psalm 5. Psalm 5. We are going to discover in this psalm uh, many similar themes that we saw already this morning, but the Lord would have us hear it twice. So we come to another prayer in the midst of trouble. Well, before we read, let's ask the Lord to give us grace to hear. Father in heaven, You are the speaking God, and You have declared Your Word to us and called us to give ear to You. Lord, we pray that we would carefully consider, conscientiously hear the Word that comes to us, for with a measure with which we hear it will be measured back to us. So Lord, let us take to heart the things that You have spoken. and Lord, we pray that You would give grace to the hearer and the preacher that Your name would be glorified. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Psalm 5, to the choir master, for the flutes, a psalm of David. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God, for to You do I pray. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. But I through the abundance of your steadfast love will enter your house i will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you lead me o lord in your righteousness because of my enemies make your way straight before me for there is no truth in their mouth their inmost self is destruction their throat is an open grave they flatter with their tongue make them bear their guilt o god let them fall By their own counsels, because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out, for they have rebelled against You. But let all who take refuge in You rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy, and spread Your protection over them, that those who love Your name may exult in You. For You bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. Thus far, the Word of God, and may He bless it to us tonight. Well, we noted last week that in Psalms three and four that they carry not only the common theme of trouble but a movement in that trouble from evening to morning, Psalm three and then to evening again in psalm four and that can pattern that pattern only continues in the text tonight as we come to Psalm five. Now, whether David is facing the very same trouble, Absalom's mutiny, we can't know for sure. Though the difficulty in view facing lying and boastful men in rebellion against God certainly fits Absalom's coup. But whatever the precise trouble is, the key is to note how David faces the trouble. No sooner is David awake in the morning that he's aware of evil men lurking and out for blood. But in their wickedness and no doubt their destructive aims against him, it doesn't sink David into despair. Rather, David does what he always does, though here with great urgency, no doubt. He rises and runs to prayer. A fresh sense of morning trouble moves David to a fresh sense of a need for morning help. So he seeks the Lord in the morning, you see in verse 3. Well, let's unpack the psalm under five headings, and we begin with cry to simply cry in verses 1 to 3 as david moves to prayer on this morning of trouble he comes before the lord conscious of his relationship with the lord he knows the god to whom he prays verse 1 give ear to my word o lord all caps o yahweh the redeeming god of exodus 3 the i will be with you god who promised to be with moses as he would stare down pharaoh or to be with joshua as he would go against enemies to conquer the land. The Lord is the God who keeps covenant forever. And he heard the groaning of his people in the past who sought him. So David seeks the Lord in his groaning, coming conscious of the special relationship that he has with the Lord. And that relationship is reflected in verse 2 where he addresses the Lord as my king and My God. Note the personal language there. My King and my God. The Lord belongs to me. And further, this relationship or this language reflects submission, dependence, and intimacy. I know you rule Yahweh, but rule me. I, I come bowing down before you, yielding to you, and yet I come looking to you to protect me as My God, I trust you as my God, the God who has a relationship of love with me. And then David pleads with the Lord, verse 2, give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God, for to you do I pray. I look to no other. I depend upon you alone. As we mentioned last week, David has a default setting, a core belief that the Lord hears him And that Yahweh, who rules all, cares about Him and is ready to receive or listen to His prayers. Brethren, is that a core belief? Do we pray to the God who is known to us? That is, as one put it, He's not a distant stranger, a person we don't know or understand. Indeed, how does Jesus tell us to approach God? We pray to our Father the language of relationship, even of intimacy, and yet of submission and dependence? Well, do we pray as children to a father? Do we come and express our needs to our God as our Heavenly Father who cares about us with great freedom and honesty? You see, David has a sense of a communion with God, a consistent engagement of the heart with the Lord. And that's something I think the editor of the Psalms is aiming to show us with this evening-to-morning-to-evening-to-morning pattern in Psalms 3-5. to And it begs a question to our hearts, well, do we commune with God? Do we actually have a relationship with the Lord? Not just lip service to Him, but a heart to please Him. And shouldn't the blood of Jesus, which gives us access to God, and the indwelling of the Spirit, enabling us to cry out, Abba, Father, shouldn't that produce in us a craving for the very presence of God? What well, is that craving seen in the way that we pray? Do we rouse our own affections in prayer by confessing who God is to us? He's my king. He's my father. He's my helper. He's the lover of my soul. He's the God who hears me. David is stirring up his heart. And then that hearing concept is interesting as David starts to pray. He uses three expressions initially to describe the prayer in verses 1 and 2. He says, my words, my groaning, and my cry. Now nothing here indicates what David is asking. He hasn't even reached the point of a request because while he evidently is using some words, he also calls it groaning. Uh, That could be translated murmuring or sighing. And the idea is of a thought that's barely audible, what we might call the internal musings of the heart that haven't worked themselves out yet in clear expression. David's saying, I can't yet formulate all that I'm thinking and feeling though I cry out to you in anguish and urgency. Now what could possibly move David to think that while he speaks some words and his words are loud expressions of a troubled heart, that Yahweh could discern his internal groans? Well, the Lord, David believes, has knowledge of him that reaches into the very depths of who He is. As David will put it in Psalm 139, He searches us and knows us. He's intimately acquainted with all of our ways. Before a word is on our tongue, He knows it completely. That's a terrifying concept to the wicked. I can't get away from God no matter what I do. But for the believer, dear friends, the Lord knows the confused ramblings of your soul when you don't even know how to express yourself. And we're given more assurance of that fact in Romans 8.26 where the Spirit takes our groanings, cleans them up as it were, and prays for us. We're not sure what to pray, but He knows our hearts, He knows our needs, and He considers us. What Tender affection is there in our God that He can look into the very core of our heart and see our distress. And He can work through the confused mess coming out in bumbling expressions. And He can discern exactly what we need and He can help us. It's like a mother who can just hear the groans of her infant and yet knows exactly what her baby seeks. Well, this is our Father's tender care for us. And yet, as the Puritans would often say, as we pray, we must pray until we pray. That is, we work through the jumbled expressions in our head, pressing to clear statements to God. And we see that happening here with David. His groanings move to a cry and then to an ordered expression. Look at verse 3. O Lord, in the morning... You hear My voice. In the morning, I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. Now David is revealing to us here, brethren, a pattern to his praying. That is, the morning was a committed time of habitual prayer. Do you have a regular time of prayer? Of going before God? This is not just something we see in David. It's what we see in our Lord as He withdraws early in the morning, away from the crowds, that He might spend time alone with God—a time to focus on praising God and bringing petitions to God and confessing sins to God and seeking renewal in God's presence. Is that a pattern of your life? You know, some people will say, "Well, I'm not really at my best in my in the morning. I pray later." Well, maybe you do, and. That would be great. But every Christian I've ever read of in the history of Christianity has always had a time of morning prayer. There's something to this of meeting your day with meeting with the Lord. And as David comes, he says literally in verse 3, the second half, in the morning, I set in order to you and watch. Now that verb to set in order is used elsewhere of the priest's arranging wood on the altar or of the priest arranging the showbread on the table. Uh, Most people take the image of sacrifice and that's where the ESV gets this translation. They assume David is preparing a sacrifice or praying in association with the sacrifice. But David isn't a priest. And while he may be praying in connection to the morning sacrifice made on God's altar, the verb to set in order just means to prepare or to arrange. And what is it David is arranging? He's arranging his prayer. He comes with his regular time of prayer with an array of thinking, and he takes pains to prepare his prayer, to order himself to make particular petitions to God. Now, some seem to think this is I don't know, an unsanctified notion to take time in prayer to order your thoughts and to consider your words before you come to the Lord in prayer. Somehow in our culture right now in the evangelical world, a lack of structure is seen to be authentic. That is not what we see in the Bible. We see structured praying. You can't write a psalm, which is a poem, by the way, without structuring Your prayer. Or if you study the prayers of the Apostle Paul, they're like overtures to a symphony providing all the themes of the letters. What we see in the various prayers of the Bible is carefully considered language, even arguments in prayer. Indeed, what's missing here are the empty phrases of the pagans who ramble on as though they will be heard due to their many words. We miss, dare I say, the incoherent drivel with filler words in prayer. We just praise You, God. We are just thankful. We just ask that You would please be with us. We just want to worship You. We just, 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 just as though I have no idea what I'm saying and how one thought moves to the next. Or the catchphrases, the the Christianese that happens in Our prayers, Lord, would you lead us, guide us and direct us Lord? just lead, guide and direct that one and lead, guide and direct that one and lead, guide and direct that one or bless, fill and help, bless, fill and help or show us your will. Lord, we want to walk in your will or we want to do your will or we give you honor and glory and praise and we praise you and honor you and glorify you. Now, on their own, brethren, these are not bad requests, but they become almost meaningless phrases that flow thoughtlessly from our mouths often accompanied with the same name for God said about 20 times. Now, bringing this up might really step on some toes because nothing will light a fire in people faster than criticizing their praying. But again, Jesus tells us not to heap up empty phrases in our praying. He teaches us to give to the Father ordered petitions to shape our prayers. What well, Are we learning? Are we coming to God in the morning and setting our prayer in order? Do we do it? This can be the value of writing down your prayers so that you slow down long enough to mentally engage, to be thoughtful, varied, and yet still earnest and heartfelt. Or even if you are engaging in what the Puritans would call free prayer. Free prayer doesn't mean you didn't think about it. It meant you studied first and then you prayed. Now, there's a danger, of course, of pursuing eloquence in prayer, but that's probably not our problem. We need stated times of morning prayer and thoughtful, ordered petitions. And note this, you can be ordered in your praying even when you're in a crisis. Because David was. That's what he's doing. He's setting in order his prayer to the Lord in the midst of trouble. He cries out and he waits expectantly. He believes God will hear and do something. So he prays and waits. Do we pray and wait? Why should we come expectantly? Well, secondly, see with me, not just cry, but now character in verses 4-6. to David moves from his description of prayer to establishing a ground for prayer. That is the reason he's expectant. Notice the connective in verse 4. For, the reason I'm watching, for you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Dave is in trouble. He's attacked, maligned, pursued. They want to shed his blood. And he has the biblical sense enough to know God doesn't like these wicked actions. Why do I think God will consider my groaning and hear my cry and receive my prepared petitions? because the things happening to me do not please the Lord. As we've already noted, David is praying as a man who knows God. He knows His character. The Lord is holy, pure, and righteous. He can't countenance the corruption of evil men. Indeed, verse 4, evil may not dwell with you. God is separated from all wickedness. And that truth should get our attention. Evil can't be with God. So what am I to do about my evil? You see, we need a sufficient sacrifice to wash our evil away. Because if we have even a spot of iniquity, we can't dwell with God. Brethren, this is the why of the atonement. And it's why we come before the Lord always pleading the blood and righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ because we are separated from God due to our sin. And yet God in His love sent His Holy Son to wash us and clothe us with His righteousness that we may dwell with the Lord. And without this covering, we have no nearness to God. Indeed, there's an echo of Psalm 1 here. The wicked won't stand in the judgment, Psalm 1 had said. And look at verse 5. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. God hates the proud. And proud boasters will have no heaven in their future. Further, David confesses, I wait for my king and my God to give attention to my cry because, into verse 5, you hate all evildoers. Verse 6, you destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. Now, do you recognize the association here made with evil men and their spiritual father? What does Jesus say about the devil in John 8? He says he is a murderer from the beginning, a liar, and the father of lies. Well, what are these men here? They are murderers and liars. And while Jesus appeals to those in John 8 in love, what does David say right here concerning the standing of these wicked men before God? God hates. All evildoers. Ralph Davis notes that David's language dispenses with the common idea God loves the sinner, hates the sin. Now, the text says that God hates the sinner, God hates all evildoers. Yes, it's true, there is a sense which blows our mind that God loves all of His creatures, that God takes a loving action in sending His Son as the only means by which a sinner can be saved, but God hates evildoers. This is not the only place the Bible says this. Actually, we see it quite frequently. God hates the proud. That occurs at least three times in the Bible. James 4, 1 Peter, Proverbs God hates six things, even seven. Proverbs 6, He hates lying tongues. He hates those shedding innocent blood. He hates proud-looking eyes or haughty eyes. God's not sending certain sins to hell. He's sending sinners to hell. And justly so. And on that basis, knowing God despises evil and will bring men to account for their evil, David prays expectantly. God, you're going to intervene. Brethren, this knowledge of God's character moves us to pray for deliverance from evil men and expect that God will do something. Why do we bring before the Lord petitions about wickedness that we see all around us? Because we know God's going to do something. He's the only one who can. God will rescue the afflicted and He'll wipe out the wicked ultimately. And when lawlessness is visited upon us, God will see and act. Now, we can struggle with the win of God's action because we want Him to intervene now. But that's not up to us. But ultimately, no evildoer will be safe. Further, this same knowledge of God's character in a different setting motivates prayers for conversions. Why do we preach Christ? Well, we do so in love for our fellow man, but we do it knowing that if you don't have Christ to wash your sins away, if you don't have a justifying sacrifice in the Lord Jesus, no man can stand before God. It's submission to Christ or perish in your sin. And likewise, in the setting of this psalm, it's serve God's anointed King David or face God as judge because the Lord abhors evil. That comforts David in the trouble he praises God's flawless character that He won't allow evildoers to win. Isn't that a comfort? Every every great story you've ever read in the history of all of your story reading from War of the Rings to Star Wars, whatever your favorite is, right wins. That's a biblical principle. But you have no reason to hang on to it unless you actually believe the Bible. God will overturn or overtake Injustice. Praise God for that. But then third, we see covenant love. In contrast to these evil men who may not dwell with you, David says. Verse 7, but I, not because I am righteous, not because I have no evil in me, no, but I through the abundance of your steadfast love will enter your house. What makes David different than the bloodthirsty and deceitful men? One thing. God's covenant of love. The grace of God abundantly lavished upon David. You see, when we praise God for his revulsion from evil men and his readiness to rescue us, we don't entertain thoughts that we are superior. We don't come to plead for God to act because I'm better than those people over there. We're not better. We're wretches. And yet God saved us. This is the emphasis of Paul in Ephesians 2 in particular. Remember, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you used to walk. Remember that you were doomed even as the rest. Remember that you were without hope and without God in the world, but God intervened. God saved you. God shed His love abroad in your hearts. David's in trouble, but he's singing amazing grace that saved a wretch like me. And he's saying, I will enter your house, Lord, and it's only because of your grace. But David may not be thinking of final entering at the last day when judgment comes. He may be thinking of restoration. These wicked people have driven me out of the city of God where I can't go to worship. I'm on the run from Absalom. I'm separated from the sanctuary. But he's eyeing the day of return. A day, he says, verse 7, when I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of Note the relationship here between grace and fear. David touts God's grace that brings him close. But when he comes close to the God of grace, he comes in the fear of the Lord. Great grace leads to great fear. What kind of fear are we talking about? Not a dread that's an aversion to God. It's a a fear that draws you near. It's an awe of God's glory, His grace, His greatness that then drives your obedience. There is, to quote Psalm 2, a service to the Lord with fear, a rejoicing with trembling. You see, do we sense that our acceptance that we have is by grace alone? And at the same time, do we sense the immensity of God's grace, His power, His holiness, His incomprehensibility, that leads us to stand in awe before the Lord, ready to do whatever He says. Brethren, that's true religion and not the hypocrisy of many who claim grace and then go on in their evil. Wisdom, at least the beginning of it, is walking in the fear of the Lord. And that's what David is doing. Grace taught his heart to fear. It seems like I've heard that line somewhere. Then after extolling God's covenant love and being in awe of Yahweh, David finally comes to a specific petition in his trouble. Verse 8, Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. And the word here for enemies is interesting. It's literally watchers. Watchers. The wicked are watching. They're looking on. They're waiting for David to mess up. Just like the religious leadership was doing with Jesus. They want to find David caught somehow walking contrary to the Lord. And isn't that what the devil is doing with us? He's prowling around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. He lurks. He eyes us to see if we will maintain faithfulness. Well, David knows his weakness. So he prays for the grace of God to lead him. Lord, show me the right way. Prevent me from missteps which are contrary to your righteous standards. And isn't it interesting that while David is in this mess, right here, he doesn't pray for safety. He prays for godliness. Now you saw in the prayer this morning, not praying for safety, but praying for boldness. This is slightly different. But praying for godliness. He doesn't just want to get out of trouble. He wants to walk worthily of the Lord in trouble. Something that's really hard for us to accept particularly as 21st century Westerners. Trouble is normative for the Christian life. I know you want an easy button. I know you would sure like it if no trials ever came in your life. That is unrealistic and wouldn't be good for you. The Lord brings trial into our lives, but is the trial refining our faith to commit us to God's way And when hardships come, when liars and slanders move in, do we strive to walk in the truth and refuse to return evil for evil? We don't want to adopt the methods of the ungodly. The native inclination of the flesh, of course, is to get even. But David wants integrity. And integrity is achieved by grace alone. Lord, if I'm to be safe, it will only be because You lead me. Don't give my enemies an occasion to gloat because of my sin. Don't let your people be put to shame because of me. Show me what to do. Well, brethren, do we have an active sense of dependence on the Lord as we see here that I can't carry on at all unless the Lord give me His counsel? Lord, I must have Your direction. And where is this counsel and direction found? should be a difficult question. It's found in the Word of God. There He gives us the path of righteousness. But will we daily plead that God would make His Word clear in our practical living so that we would know what to do and what to say? Do we have the awareness, dear people, that we don't know how to guide ourselves? That we can't lean on our own understanding? That we need God's counsel? And when trouble strikes, and it will, when you feel out of your depths, thinking, I don't know what to do, will you run to the Lord and not your first reaction? Will you pray, teach me, O Lord? And our God of covenant love will do just that. I've always been struck by a prayer of David in Psalm 25, where David confesses that the Lord is good and upright. And then the next verse doesn't make sense to me. Therefore, you teach sinners in the way. If He's good and upright, wouldn't He just be averse from sinners? But no, you're good and upright, therefore you, you come close to teach sinners. He stoops to us, to instruct us. What a kind word. Fourth we see, curse. Why does David need to be carefully led by the Lord? It's because of his enemies. Verse 9, there is no truth in their mouth. Statements almost verbatim said of the devil. In John 8, Jesus says there is no truth in him. Well, these servants of the devil, though these men are among the covenant people of God, though they've heard the truth, they don't speak the truth. And why not? Because, verse 9, their inmost self is destruction. The rot in their heart produces rotten words. We speak out of what is in us. And these men have ruin or death within them. Thus David says, and Paul will quote it in Romans 3, their throat is an open grave. What a wretched picture that is. It's like a horror movie. A person opens his mouth and death comes out. Flesh devouring insects, destructive forces, stench, nothing but rot. However, while death is in their throat, like a smoker chewing gum to cover the smell, these fellas flatter with their tongues. Flattery has the air of compliment, but it's always laced with lies designed to allure you to trouble, like the forbidden woman of Proverbs 6, who speaks smooth or flattering words to suck you into death. And every time the Bible mentions flattery, it's in the context of deeds of the deceitful. David knows these men speak twisted words, and they're blowing smoke his way, but they can't be trusted. And think of the dagger to his heart to know that his friend and counselor, Ahithophel, has been greeting him with smiles and then slandering him behind his back. And then others in the leadership of Judah threw in their lot with Absalom. And Absalom worked for a while to build a coalition against David. So in public, all these people were flattering David, but in private, they despised him. And now, their flattery has been shown to be what it is. It's poison. The conspiracy comes into the open and they want David dead. But as these snakes come for him, David prays, verse 10, Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Let all their schemes come on their heads. Again, many are uncomfortable uncomfortable with the curse language that we've seen. But when the snake slithers in to strike your precious child, that thing must die. And it's not that David thinks he's better than these people. No, he's praying. Not, I don't like these people, Lord, so kill them all. It doesn't matter what David does or doesn't like, because the snakes into verse 10 have rebelled against Yahweh. They've made themselves your enemies. So knowing God is the God of justice, David prays that their sin would sink them. Put things right, Lord, by casting them out, because there will be no peace in your kingdom until these blights on your realm are removed. In these psalms of conflict, psalms spelling out the conflict between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman, when David prays, curse the enemies, he's saying, curse your enemies, Lord, the people who are rebelling against you. And again, brethren, part of the glory of the day when we'll finally, by grace alone, be free of enemies, it will be, as Isaiah puts it, on the highway to Zion, no lion will be there. No ravenous beast. Nothing to make you afraid. No devilish servant to trip you up. That's the place we want to be. A place free from enemies. And yet David is looking for something of the taste of that in the present. If you remember the story in 2 Samuel, as David's going out of the city, he meets his friend Hushai. Right after David prayed, Lord thwart Ahithophel's counsel. Hushai goes to the court of Absalom And the Lord uses him to do just that, to thwart Ahithophel's counsel. They decide. Ahithophel says, go kill David immediately and just kill David. Hushai says, David's a pretty bad dude. And the guys with him, they're they're some tough hombres. You might not want to go after them. You might want to wait a minute and mount a a vast army and crush everybody who stands with David. Well, the guys decide, hey, we're going to follow Hushai's advice. Ahithophel immediately knows the jig is up. And like Judas, rather than repent, he hanged himself. His guilt clung to him and he died in disgrace. That is the end of all who make themselves an enemy of God's anointed king. Their schemes will collapse. Yes, wicked people may have a season of success, but no weapon formed against God's people will prosper. But then finally we see covering In contrast to the liars with, if I could put it this way, death breath, throats like an open grave who rebel against God, David prays for a covering for the godly. Verse 11, but let all who take refuge in you rejoice. There's an echo of Psalm 2, those taking refuge in the Son. And that's intentional. Because again, there are two types of people. Those who spurn God's King, those who submit to God's King. Well, which are we? Let there be no flattering that we serve Christ the King when our confession of His name is contrary to our life. What marks the godly? They take refuge in the Lord. They rest on Christ. They run to Christ. They hide themselves in Christ as their only place of safety. David knows, as a sinner, the only place of safety as a sinner is to go to the God who forgives sin. So God is His refuge. He runs to the one with whom forgiveness is found. And if we are with Him, or better, if God is with us, if God is for us, there's no cause to fear. Rather, we can rejoice. The godly can ever sing for joy. Why? Well, what does David believe the Lord does for those who love His name? He believes the Lord will spread His protection over them. Notice verse 12. The confidence which drives the petition for protection an exaltation in God. For you, O Lord, you bless the righteous. You cover him with favor as with a shield. David knows God hates evildoers and will curse them. But David also knows God blesses the righteous and will protect him. It's interesting here that David is praying for all who take refuge in the Lord, but then the all moves to a single individual. You bless the righteous. One. Singular, literally you cover Him singular with favor as with a shield. Two lines of thought are going on. One is Christ is the righteous one. We are blessed in Him. He is given favor and He dumps His favor on us as we take refuge in Him because He is our shield. But then David, I think, is also making us see all who take refuge in the Lord are not some collection of people unknown to God No, He brings His favor close to each and every one of us. The Lord knows each one of us. And the shield being discussed here isn't a handheld shield. It's a full-body shield. But then to further protect us, Yahweh covers, that is He wraps the godly all around with His shield. picture is very similar to Psalm 3. The Lord is a shield about us or round about me. The Lord is a shield. The Lord comes close on every side. And if I rest my soul in Him, nothing can penetrate. Therefore, I can exult. I can sing for joy forever. I want you to notice as we close. David begins the morning with groans, a cry, welling up to an ordered prayer. But while praying, and the trouble hasn't stopped, assurance, of a covering arrives, and that assurance gives his soul joy no matter the troubles in life. Brethren, are we assured that the blessing and covering are ours because we take refuge, we lay all of our trust in the Lord? Let us flee the deeds of the devil and fly to the Father who loves us, cares for us, who envelops us with His protection, and who listens to our voice. We live in a violent and wicked world, but our Father's care attends to us. And that gives us joy. May we find such joy in the Lord. Brethren, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to praise You as the Lord our God, the God who has given Himself to us in Your covenant. Lord, as we call upon You as our God and our King, we ask, O Lord, that You, as we take refuge in You, would protect us. Lord, we know on the basis of Jesus Christ that You are for us. So Lord, let us not be threatened when evil men move in to slander our name, to attack our Savior. Lord, let us trust that You will bring down the wicked and You, by Your steadfast love, will receive us into Your house. Lord, until that day comes, give us give us present courage and boldness in prayer that we would put our petitions before You. For we pray these things in the name of the Lord Jesus and all of God's people said, Amen.